Good morning, church. Happy Easter. I know you've already heard this, but I can't think of a better way to begin. It's the way we've begun for years here, and so just do it with me. I won't be able to hear you with my ears, but I'll hear you with my heart. He is risen. Indeed. Well, I want to share a message with you this morning that, for me, uh, it is uh, perhaps my favorite theme with regard to this grand story that we celebrate today uh, on this Resurrection Sunday. I, I, you need to know, I don't like waiting. I am not a patient man when it comes to just biding my time. And, and have you ever stopped to think about how much of our lives have been spent waiting, no matter the age, from young to old? I mean, we wait at stoplights, drive-through lanes, railroad crossings, check-out lines and check-in lines. You wait an interminable time at the license branch when you go to get your license for the very first time. We wait for open tables at our rest favorite restaurants. We wait for the sales associate to help us with the purchase. We wait for our turn to go down the slide at the city park. We wait to see the doctor, the dentist, the optometrist, the therapist, and the auto mechanic. Have you considered how much time you've spent in waiting rooms? Man, I wish we'd call them something else. Maybe just a minute rooms, and, and maybe it would help with the process. Did you know that Americans waste more than 2.75 billion hours waiting for some type of in-home service, a utility hookup, appliance repair, the delivery of furniture, you name it. The loss in hours is the equivalent of 1.3 million people out of work for an entire year. Wow. We wait on hold to speak with technicians we can't understand to fix a problem they can't understand. I like this automated hold message offered by one company. It goes like this. We appreciate your patience. At this time, we're receiving a much higher than normal call volume. If longevity runs in your family, please remain on the line and the next available representative will assist you. <laughs> But there's a story in Psalms that may just change your perspective on waiting. And you say, a story in Psalms? I didn't think there were stories in Psalms. Well, yes, it doesn't read like your favorite novel, I'll tell you that, but it's there, and it's there clearly. It's the story of history's greatest event. You know, God told this story numerous ways through the ages. He wanted us to know it so we wouldn't miss it when it happened. But one of his most powerful narratives is found in three consecutive psalms. Three, Psalm 22, 23, and 24. If you ask me my favorite number, it would be three because of its grand significance in Scripture. It is the number of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. Noah had three sons through whom the human race was established after the flood. There were three great patriarchs of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is the angels' threefold praise of God, holy, holy, holy. The pillars of the Christian life are faith, hope, and love. Jesus' public ministry lasted three years. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times. On the next day and evening after that, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. According to the Jewish time, it was the third hour of the day when Jesus was crucified. His cross was one of three Roman crosses on Golgotha. 
the placard over his head that read, King of Nazareth, or excuse me, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Jesus suffered from three wounds, head, hands, and feet. The women at the foot of the cross, three of them were named Mary. Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and of course, Mary, his mother. And folks, that's just a sampling of the threes that crop up in Scripture. What's more, the Scriptures are full of what we call three-day or third-day stories. When Abraham feared that he was going to have to sacrifice his son to God, it was on the third day that God stopped him and provided a ram as a substitute. When Joseph's brothers, who had sold him into slavery, come to Egypt during the famine to buy food, they're put in prison but released on the third day. After Rahab helped the spies escape from the city of Jericho, she told them to hide, and then on the third day, it would be safe to return home. Over and over and over again, these third-day stories crop up in Scripture. The prophet Hosea wrote this in chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he will receive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. I love the number three. Three times in the New Testament, Jesus is identified as our shepherd. In the gospel of John, he is the good shepherd. In the book of Hebrews, he is the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter, he is the chief shepherd. In Psalm 22, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In Psalm 23, he is the great shepherd who ever lives to care for his sheep. And in Psalm 24, he is the chief shepherd, raised and glorified. As the story unfolds in these three consecutive chapters, so the events surrounding the crucifixion and empty tomb unfold over a period of three consecutive days. So let's begin with this trilogy, and we'll start with Psalm 22. This psalm, this psalm captures the pain and heartbreak of suffering. It begins with an anguished prayer and cry to God. This psalm, the Good Shepherd Psalm, is Friday of our Lord's last week. You'll recognize the words here, but these are from Psalms, okay? Psalm 22 begins like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. Wow. Scholars have tried to determine if this psalm corresponds to an event in the life of David, but there is nothing in the life of David that fits these words. It's because this is God's moment. 
more than a thousand years before that ominous Friday on Golgotha just outside of Jerusalem, God is telling his story in vivid detail. And you say, well, well, surely David was watching a crucifixion. That's where he got these images, right? No, not even close. Crucifixion hadn't even been imagined yet as a form of execution. Crucifixion wouldn't come into practice for several more centuries. David isn't watching a crucifixion. He is writing prophetically without even being able to understand the context of what he is writing. Oh, but we can. We can see the picture clearly. Could anything be more obvious? This is Jesus in the Psalms. It is a glimpse of the suffering Savior from the opening quote of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? to that picture of the soldiers gathered around his cross, dividing up his garments and casting lots for them. This is Friday at the crucifixion. And yet for all of the anguish and pain of this psalm, it ends with a note of expectant hope. Just as with Jesus, who with his dying words promised a repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Words of eternal hope. And just as Jesus ended his time on the cross with a shout of victory, it is finished. So this psalm ends with a triumph. Now, I don't know about you, but I am overwhelmed with the prophetic detail of this passage. When I read Psalm 22, I feel like I'm reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It is God reminding us that he understands our suffering like no one else from beginning to end. And from the very beginning, he has a plan to intercede for us. And that plan unfolds on that Friday in Jerusalem. But he tells the story in Psalm 22. This is Friday with the Good Shepherd. Now, flip over to chapter 24. In contrast to chapter 22, this psalm is a psalm of triumph. If Psalm 22 was Friday's song, then Psalm 24 is Sunday's song. Listen to these triumphant words. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your head, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, O you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Now, there were lots of feasts and festivals that the uh, Hebrew people celebrated, but three of them required attendance in Jerusalem. And so on these three festival occasions, people from all over the kingdom would converge upon the city of Jerusalem to celebrate. It was Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This psalm was a part of the Jewish liturgy, and according to ancient rabbinical sources, Psalm 24 was always used in worship, are you ready for this, on the first day of the week. That's Sunday. That's not the Sabbath. That's Sunday. So on Palm Sunday, this psalm would have been echoing inside the temple as Jesus was riding the donkey up the hill into the city of Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this psalm is written for antiphonal praise. In other words, you had to have two choirs 
to, to, to go through this psalm. So visualize it for a minute. Inside the temple, this is happening. Two great choirs. One would begin with, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? And then the other choir would pick up the refrain and answer, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Now, now here's what you need to know. All of this was leading up to the ultimate scene depicted in these words of David. Don't miss this. It's the following Sunday. Not Palm Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the day of Christ's triumph. And long before the triumph of the empty tomb was discovered in this world, there was a celebration ringing through the courts of heaven. Oh, to have been there and to have lived this moment. I want you to picture two massive celestial choirs, maybe one made up of angels and the other one maybe made up of saints who are already at home with the Lord. The sound shakes the very foundation of the heavenly city. And you can hear the one choir lift up the praise. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? And then the other choir in heaven picks up the phrase, the Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. And there he stands, the risen, triumphant, eternal Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the chief shepherd forever. No wonder this is Sunday's Psalm. What a triumphant picture in the eternal city. Heaven reverberated with all hail King Jesus. Sing along, will you? All hail King Jesus. What a, what a fabulous scene that must have been in heaven. Now, now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, okay, Psalm 22 and 24, they're great psalms, but Tom, you skipped right over the best one, Psalm 23. Ah, yes, Psalm 23, the great shepherd's psalm. Folks, this is Saturday's song. Now, what do we know about Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday? Well, there are a total of 89 chapters in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four chapters, only four chapters are devoted to the first 30 years of Jesus' life. 57 chapters are devoted to the three-year ministry of Jesus up to Palm Sunday. But 28 chapters are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. And of those 28 over 16 chapters are devoted to the time between the Last Supper and the resurrection. This is the most important moment in history from God's perspective. The details of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday are astounding. But out of 3,749 verses in the Gospels, only one half of one verse is devoted to Saturday in between those moments. The second half of Luke 23, 56 reads like this. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. That's it. Eight words in the original Greek. Eight words for Saturday. And what a bleak, miserable, hopeless, silent day Saturday was. It was a day of the minor key and the mournful cry. John Ortberg, one of my favorite authors, had this to say about Saturday between the Lord's death and resurrection. It's the day after this, but the day before that, 
The day after a prayer gets asked, but the day before it gets answered. It's the day in between. The day between despair and joy, brokenness and healing, confusion and understanding, fear and hope, life and death. Saturday is the in-between day, the day of God's silence. And don't you know what a day that was for the disciples? Devastating. We can only speculate about their Saturday. We know that Judas was already dead, and Thomas was off somewhere devastated by the sorrow of losing the Lord for whom he had pledged to give his life if necessary. John was likely comforting Mary because that's what Jesus asked him to do from the cross. And Peter? Ah, I think Peter was too ashamed to show his face on that Saturday. I think Peter cringed every time he heard a rooster crow. And the rest, I I don't know where they were or what they were doing, but I am confident that they all, all of them shared two things in common. And the first thing was I think they felt helpless. I think they sensed that they had failed. We should have done more. What if we'd said or done something different? And how could we have missed Judas's intentions? That awkward kiss in the garden, that kiss of death, which is where the expression comes from. If we had intervened quickly, if we'd done something differently, maybe Jesus would still be alive. They felt so hopeless. Ever feel that way? Or that helplessness that, um, that goes along with being out of control or not having any control. That's how they felt. And in addition to feeling that helplessness, they, they also felt that hopelessness. Had Jesus failed? I mean, they, they had all their hopes pinned on it. Had he failed? They may not have verbalized that, but I'm telling you, they had to be thinking that. I mean, Jesus had not been able to overcome the hatred of the religious leaders or stand up against the power of Rome or sway the apathy of the fickle crowds so it appeared to them. Why, Jesus hadn't been able to even inspire courage among his closest followers to show up at the foot of the cross and be counted as loyal. And what did? All the Lord's wonderful words and beautiful promises get him nothing but a cold slab in a borrowed tomb. What hope was left? They, they had none on that Saturday. Do you ever feel hopeless? Like tomorrow isn't worth living, that going forward isn't worth the effort? You see, have you ever wondered why there is a Saturday in the story to begin with? I mean, why couldn't Jesus have just died on the cross and hours later, joy of joys, he is raised without sparing the world such helpless and hopeless feelings? Why did it have to cover three days? Ah, folks, I believe God was teaching us that we live in a Saturday world. And without the empty day between that gruesome cross and that glorious empty tomb, we could not fully grasp living in this waiting, broken world. Now keep in mind, all three-day stories in Scripture follow a similar pattern. There's bad news on day one. There's deliverance on day three. But the middle day? The middle day is a day of waiting, uncertainty, and silence. Do you remember the story of Jonah? On day one, he was thrown overboard and swallowed by a great fish. That's the bad news. On day three, the fish spits him out onto dry land and and Jonah goes to Nineveh to preach. That's the deliverance. 
But day two, day two was a day of waiting on God in this very dark, unknowing place. When Jesus wanted a story, a moment, an event to give a glimpse into his own sacrifice, he chose this story. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's the truth, folks, that we dare not forget. We live our entire lives in a Saturday world. We know what God did on Friday for our sins, and we know what he has promised through the resurrection on Sunday, but we're stuck, we're stuck in a Saturday world. Wrongs haven't been righted. Pain, heartbreak, and suffering are still hanging around. Mortality has not given way to immortality. It's a Saturday world to be sure. This whole COVID-19 virus has turned our world every which way but loose. We don't know what new restrictions we may face tomorrow. We don't know when or if this virus will invade our lives. We don't know how long it will take before we feel comfortable again shaking hands or sharing a hug or sitting in a packed pew on Sunday morning. Will our economy bounce back? Will there be a vaccine soon? Will this virus always be here with us? I don't know the answers. You don't know the answers because we're living in a Saturday world. You see, day two, Saturday, is sort of like day one in the sense that the trouble is here but you can't do anything about it. You can't make it go away. You can't change the outcome by human power. On day three, God brings deliverance. That's when we rejoice and celebrate. That's the day of glorious news. But here's the problem. On day two, in a Saturday world, you don't know if you're living a third day story until the third day. On the second day, you don't know if deliverance is ever going to come. So that's why we love Psalm 23 so much, because it gets us through our Saturday lives with all the unknowns and all the unanswered questions. And when you live in a Saturday world, the pain in your life can sometimes feel overwhelming. And it's more than just the COVID-19 virus. You lose your job or you take a pay cut, and at your age, that's devastating. Your marriage falls apart. Your child walks away from the family. Your peace is replaced by panic attacks because you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. You lose a spouse, a parent, a child to death, and you can't even give them a proper funeral. You pray for strength and you pray for help, and it seems as if all of heaven is silent. That's life in a Saturday world. And over these last several weeks, when everything has been up in the air so much, I've been reminded over and over and over again how desperately this old sheep needs the great shepherd. I know I won't be able to hear you, but the words should be visible to you. And maybe this isn't a good time for you to do as a family, so I'm going to suggest maybe after the service is over that you sit down before you do anything else, and as a family, you go through Psalm 23. But if you can, just read it with me this morning in your home or wherever you happen to be. The words are more beautiful with every passing moment. Psalm 23, beginning in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A teacher asked her Sunday school class of early elementary students if any of them knew or could quote from Psalm 23. And one perky little girl raised her hand. The teacher called on her, obviously skeptical, and said, you know the whole thing? And she said, yes, I do. And she stood up, faced the class, and said, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all that I want. And she sat down. <laughs> That's pretty good theology, folks. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all that I want. And in this beautiful Saturday psalm, God promises that we will want for nothing. We will not want for contentment. We will not want for guidance. We will not want for protection. And especially, we will not want for an eternal home. What great promise to get us through our Saturdays. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I said, I'm not good at waiting. And I sort of suspect you're probably the same way. We live in that day between. That day with its feelings of bitter failure and broken dreams. I want to know, when your dream dies on Friday, what do you do on Saturday? Well, you can give up on hope. You can live as if there is nothing but a Saturday world, but I'm telling you, don't lose hope. When, when hope dies, life fades. And the resurrection, the resurrection is all about hope. When your dream dies on Friday, what do you do on Saturday? Well, you can turn away from the truth and believe that we've all been duped or snookered or deceived, but don't let the silence of Saturday fill you with doubt. The resurrection sealed God's truth. You see, if Jesus could conquer death, then everything else he said is true. So when your dream dies on Friday, what do you do on Saturday? You could wait on God. Because of the resurrection, I can learn to trust when I cannot see beyond my Saturday. And honestly, on Saturday, folks, he's all we've got. On Christmas, all of heaven marveled to see the God of the universe lying in a manger. On Good Friday, all of heaven wept to see the God of the universe dying on a cross. And on Saturday, all of heaven was stunned to see the God of the universe lying in a in a tomb. But here's the most incredible truth ever. If the God of the universe can be found on a cross and in a tomb, then where can't he be found? In the moment of your greatest need and at the point of your greatest sorrow, he's there. When the bottom falls out of your life, he's there. When it seems like Saturday will never end, he's there. In a Saturday world, he's all that you've got. Then again, he's all that you need because of Sunday. This is why today matters so much. I can handle my life, my everyday life in a Saturday world because of what happened on Sunday. 
In the world, it may be Saturday, but in my soul, it's Sunday. And I know that no matter what comes my way, God has already brought the ultimate deliverance. You see, folks, ours is a third day story because of Easter. And that's why today is like no other day in all of history. I don't like waiting, but I can handle Saturday because of Easter's triumph. It is worth the wait. So I got a question for you. In your soul this morning, is it Saturday or is it Sunday? Psalm 22, 23, and 24 tell the greatest story ever. Trust him with all your tomorrows. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that Jesus gave his life for us to pay the price of our sin and that he rose victorious on Sunday to assure us and promise and guarantee us life everlasting. And so, Lord, through this time of uh, the COVID-19 virus, and here we are, Lord, today on what is supposed to be the peak of this virus. How appropriate in our minds that today is our day of victory over anything that happens in this life and world. Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us serving, sharing, loving, helping, encouraging, because in this Saturday world, we need the hope of Sunday and the resurrected Christ. May he be glorified today and tomorrow and in every day of our lives in this broken Saturday world. May your will be done. Thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.